Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Store. This is a podcast for Southeast Utah and Castle Country. I'm your host, Oren Stainbrook, and my guests today are Jade Powell, who is the Deputy Director and Regional Economic Development Strategist at formerly, or we'll talk about this, uh, the, the Southeastern Utah Association of Local Governments and the Southeastern Utah Economic Development District which uh, has undergone a recent rebrand, rename, uh, as far as I understand, and now is called CERTA, the Southeastern Regional Development Agency. We're going to talk about all that. Uh, but I have two guests. The other is Tamara Dockstater, who is the Community Development Program Manager here. So thank you guys so much for being willing to talk to me today and educate me. Uh, I'm really curious about your work. I know you, you're involved in a lot of things. You have a lot going on here. so. I want to understand better what, what, what it's all about and, by extension, help uh, anyone who's curious and listening to this also be in, better informed and educated about your work. So uh, you all are now in this beautiful new building here. I, I really like it. It's a, it's a very warm, nice feeling space. Um, I'm curious uh, if what uh, this represents for you. If, if the building was what catalyzed this kind of rebrand that you've gone through, um, if you could just uh, tell us about that. My, my first question is just if you can explain to us um, what, what are these three different entities or agencies about, these, these different acronyms. So I'm not sure. I, I heard, overheard someone say that part of the reason for this uh, rename rebrand was because the old acronyms were, were kind of long and uh, hard to hard to pronounce so the southeastern utah association of local governments seualg and for and it's always been paired with the southeastern utah economic development district seuedd so first i'm just wondering if you can explain what are these two agencies and why are they paired together are and is are these like uh, related to government or are they nonprofits? Why why were they formed initially, and how long ago was that? And then my next question will be if you can explain what this rebrand is about. Are those names now obsolete, and is it officially now just CERTA? Is CERTA the now an, like an umbrella entity for those what were formerly two separate ones? Can you explain that? I'm gonna cough real quick. <laughs> I have like a terrible cough, so not because of anything. I've just always had it since ever. So I was just waiting for you to break. Yeah, I'll go ahead yeah. and take that. Please. So I'll give you just a little bit of history. So AOGs, Association of Governments, which SEUALG, Southeastern Utah Association of Local Governments, still an AOG, Association of Governments. We're the only one in Utah. There's seven of us, but we're the only one in Utah that actually kept the name kept the word local in it. Who knows why? I don't. We were created over 50 some years ago back in 1969 through um, an interagency cooperative. Um, and so that was done in, in the late 1960s. And, and the reason was that the state of Utah was receiving so many block grants. So like the community development block grant, the community services block grant, the social services block grant. All this federal money was coming to Utah, and then Utah was then pushing out to the communities, but there wasn't enough money to help administer the programs or really get the money out to the communities. And so 
the governor at the time, back in the 70s, created Association of Governments and split Utah basically into re regional governments. And so we're one of seven. We cover Carbon, Emory, Grand, and San Juan counties. And essentially what we were tasked with back in the 70s was creating or helping manage and administer those block grants, making sure that the federal programs were getting out to, to the citizens of southeastern Utah. Right about that same time, the United States also created through the Economic Development Administration, which is part of the um, Department of Commerce, the EDA created economic development districts. And so there's about 400 of those across the whole United States. Hmm. And so we're one of those 400 in the state of Utah. Again, we're one of seven, each of the AOGs about this, like I was saying about the same time, um, Utah looked and said, we already have these regional government entities, um, AOGs, so why don't we also make them the economic development district? And so that's how come we became Southeastern Utah Economic Development District. So you are right when you say, oftentimes you'll see our name that says Southeastern Utah Association of Governments and Southeastern Utah Economic Development District. Now I can go on and on about, yes, we are two separate entities, have two separate EINs. When we're applying for grants, we need to make sure we're following the right ones. And Anyway, but it, it just got confusing to people, especially with the word government in our name. Oftentimes people thought, you know, government, you're in charge of policy, help change that, but really we're more in the advocacy role of helping advocate for our citizens, helping provide services to our citizens, helping um, advocate and educate our elected officials, helping them move forward with projects. And so we, as you mentioned, we're, we're now in a new building. Um, we were outgrowing our, our existing space that was back on Carbon Avenue here in Price. Um, and we decided to get a new building. And as we were getting a new building, we said we we should really consider rebranding and really taking a step back and thinking about what we what we do. And so one of the things that as we were meeting with program managers as the executive team um, here at the agency, the administration was meeting with the program managers. One of the reoccurring themes was that we're a regional entity and that we do development, whether it's community development, economic development, or even social development, personal development. That's some somehow or another we're, we're involved with that. And so that's how kind of the Southeastern Regional Development Agency came about is because we feel like we're, we're development in and out from our HEAT program to our CIRCLES program, um, which is helping people be lifted out of poverty and giving them a hand up um, to do in our community development block grant, which Tamara runs, to do an economic development in, in our counties and in our cities. And so, um, and then also just like you mentioned, Oren, you know, S-E-U-A-L-G isn't very friendly to pronounce. It's a whole lot of letters. And so we just thought, what's something easier, CERTA, um, that we can go with now? We we still legally will be the Southeast New Utah Association of Governments in the Southeast New Utah Economic Development District. Um, and we've just filed a DBA um, as CERTA. So kind of like you said, like an umbrella agency that kind of will kind of oversee the two, will just become CERTA versus trying to make people just differentiate between the two. Uh, okay, thank you so much for that explanation. I have a, a much better mental map of, of how this works now. Um, that's, that's pretty clear. So it was the uh, SEUALG was a kind of a state mandated um, entity initially or, or program, a, a way of dividing up the state, but I assume other states probably have similar districts or uh, AOGs? 
Yeah, other states call them COGS, Council of Governments. Mm. Um, so we belong to a couple different organizations, like membership organizations so, that are similar. And so as far as I know, Utah's the only one that's known as Association of Governments. Okay. Um, and other states are just known as either development organizations or um, COGS, Council of Governments. You might also hear like MPOs or R RPOs, like um, regional planning organizations or metropolitan planning organizations. So we're very similar to that. Um, that other states have. Okay, and and then the development districts. There were 400 nationally, so that was more of a like a federal program or mandate, or just uh, and and. But then these are all they kind of function independently as their own entities and have. Do they have nonprofit status so that you apply for grants or is it some other kind of entity? So it's a different type of entity. Um, we're a public entity. We were created through the interlocal, I think it's called the interlocal cooperation agreement back in 1970 um, through, I believe it was Governor Matheson. So yes, we're a nonprofit, but we're not like a 501c3 nonprofit. Um, however, under our agency, we have created a couple different nonprofits um, or we're involved with a couple different nonprofits just so that we have access to um, that those grant funding should we need to. So we have the Southeastern Community Action Partnership, which a, a CAP agency is something that we have multiple across Utah and across the United States. Um, community Action Partnerships is what they're called. So we're just Southeastern CAP. And um, that, uh, that gives us availability to tap into some of those grants that um, are kind of poverty, poverty focused and helping people. And so we've created a nonprofit just so that we could tap into those resources. We're also involved with like the BTAC, the Business Technical Assistance Center, which is a business incubator space, um, helping small businesses get started, helping entrepreneurs, you know, learn the tools, get the resources that they need to, to have a successful business, but also something now that we're realizing that's a big gap in our communities is helping businesses kind of make a transition or diversify. Um, as we've been so reliant on, you know, like mineral extraction and things like that, how can we help businesses kind of pivot their business model to um, pull in other business um, or tap into other industries so that they can continue to thrive and, and keep their business afloat? Um, we're involved with the CDC, the Community Development Corporation, the United Way of Eastern Utah. Um, just, just all different fronts um, of nonprofits trying to just help our community. I mean, like I said, when I just a couple seconds ago with the, um, like we're just into developing things. We just want to see things be successful. So whether that's through the United Way, the SCAP, our poverty programs, economic development, businesses, we're we're in it 110. Hmm. percent Yeah. Okay. Cool. So I don't know if I answer your question because it's. Because we're not a nonprofit, but we are a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. but okay. We're also kind of weird because we're not state employees, but we still get state benefits. Like the anyway. Yeah, yeah. Like we're part of the URS retirement system, PHP, but we're not state employees, so it's a little little funky how that interlocal agreement works. Yeah. Okay. I understand. Makes sense. And you kind of started answering some of my my next questions and other things I want to dive a little bit deeper into, but just for the sake of fleshing out this mental model, um, 
I wish it's like I, I kind of am drawing a visual diagram. I tend to be a visual learner. I'm trying to like map things out. So I'm wondering if you could, I know it's complex and there's a lot of things that um, these agencies now, CERTA, is involved with, but could you somehow give us a, like a brief summary or, or categorize what are the main uh, elements of this, this agency? Um, what, what are the main buckets for programs and services and divisions? If, if there's a, like just in the building, I think it's, it seems like architecturally it was kind of designed to um, create these, these separate offices and and then there's there's the food bank building. So, at the highest level, can you can you break that down? And Tamara, if you uh, have a, a clear idea of this and you want to sure. explain it, you can jump. Yeah, in. I can definitely explain what I do. I'm one of the program managers. I believe there's seven program managers. Yeah, how many are there? Uh, there's about thirteen. 14. Oh, there is. Okay, yeah, I forgot about Robbie. So <laughs> there are more. Um, so my responsibility is I do the community development block grant um, for small cities small cities and towns. And what that does is we're right now in the throes of putting applications together for small cities, towns, counties, local communities, and nonprofits if they have a sponsorship. And I'm putting forth funding for anything from a fire truck to pickleball courts, um, flood mitigation and trails. And so it has a lot of different things. The community development block grant has quite a few things that people can apply for. And so that first application is due the end of January. And so right now I've been doing consultation visits with all the communities in the four, the four county region. And we'll be, I'll be help facilitate their applications to get a successful application through the state. Um, also on the community development block grant side, I also do single family rehab. That's through their housing um, department. And what that is, is if they qualify, we will rehab their home to bring it back to safe and sanitary conditions. So we'll put roofs, this is a 100% grant, we'll put roofs on homes, um, put in new ADA showers, toilets. Um, if they've had some flood damage, we'll look at putting in new flooring. So there's several things, siding, insulation, there's several things that we can do to help people rehab their home. Um, obviously there's a huge uh, home shortage in, in the state of Utah. So they're putting a lot of, a lot of money behind and a lot of um, emphasis on keeping the stock that we have. Over 60, I think 65, 68% of our housing stock in this county is over um, 1960 or, or before. So we have a lot of old stock. And if we lose those, we lose rentals. We lose people trying to purchase those um, for housing, just, just housing in, in general. So. There is, um, again, that great emphasis on making sure that we keep this housing stock intact rather than them being teardowns because that's oftentimes what has to happen if they are deteriorating year after year after year. We just received the half critical home repair program, very much housing rehab, but a lot narrower. It will do some sewer um, repairs, windows, um, flood mitigation, mold mitigation, uh, new roofs and things like that. So we're actually leveraging the two programs together to try to make the money spread out a little bit further. Because if I had just depended on my CDBG funding this year, I would have been spent out in two months. Got the funding July 
1st and September and October, it was like it was trying to already put people on the wait list till July of next year. So we did get the second dairy funding. So what I'm trying to do is leverage those together so I can help both of those programs spread out a little bit. And then there's a, a third funding source, which is an emergency grant through Oling Walker. So we can get $25,000 on the CDBG grant, 100% grant, um, up to, it's a penny shy of $5,000 for the Oling Walker grant and up to $18,000 for the half critical home repair. So those three together really can help some of these houses um, get the rehab they need. Because honestly, with, with some of them, even $25,000 is a Band-Aid. There's so much work that needs to be done on them. So I think one thing that I just want to jump in and add here is <coughs> with Tamara talking, is like I, I think it kind of shows how the AOG set up to where the state of Utah receives a pot of money, the state of Utah then allocates it to the AOGs, and then the AOGs from there are the regional and local entity that then can allocate it upon the citizens or the local governments, things like that. Where if it went directly from like the federal government to the state of Utah down even to the county or the city level, you just start cutting that. That money just becomes so thin to where it, there's not enough for it to actually do big projects. And so where I wish we could do big projects in all of our communities, we have 19, 19 cities and towns, four, four counties, so 23 government entities that, that we um, represent, though I wish we could do projects in all of them, unfortunately we can't. They're just, however, we can double up money or, or put a lot of money towards one project in one town and then another project in another town the next year, and so you can really kind of piece it together to really get projects done. Um, Tamara kind of just spoke about our housing programs, um, which we have that, and then we have a mutual self-help housing program that is kind of that old old mentality of uh, like barn raising church building where we have participants there's about in our current group there's six families <coughs> and these six fam families are literally building their own homes they're there from about five o'clock at night till about 7 30 every night and then on the weekends they're there from six seven eight o'clock in the morning I think it's later now that it's colder and dark still but they're there early in the morning till mm -hmm. late at night Saturdays and Sundays literally pouring gravel, pouring cement, you know, framing their own home and putting in their own windows. They did two roofs in one day because they have that many volunteers, which I think is just amazing. But that's kind of how we can help these. It's an income qualified um, program, but that's how we can help these families and these individuals get into homes is that if they do 65% of the work, they put in that sweat equity, um, then their payment's going to be lower. Um, their house isn't going to cost as much and so then that that gets them into that into a brand new home which probably they wouldn't be able to afford um, otherwise so I mean that's our housing programs then we have the revolving loan fund that we can lend businesses up to $150,000 startup businesses or existing businesses that want to expand um, we're traditionally gap financing so if you get turned down from the bank or the bank doesn't like it because it's maybe a little bit more risk, that's where we step in. We take on that risk and we try to help businesses be successful. So we have that arm in the AOG. We have the weatherization program that goes into older homes. And um, again, income qualified for this one is that goes into homes, make them more energy efficient. We test their appliances. We test their light bulbs. We test their windows, their insulation, their furnace, their doors. 
basically what they do is they hook up this big machine it's not really big it just straps to the front door but it makes it sound cool when I talk about it but it <laughs> basically it pressurizes the house and, and it can literally tell like where they're losing, where they're losing air or where they're losing energy where they're not energy efficient and then from there they have a whole computer program that's all based upon um, they call them SIR saving to investment ratios and so they can plug in and say if you replace these three windows your home's going to be more energy efficient or if you replace the furnace or if you replace the refrigerator if you replace as funny as it sounds we test like your faucets to see like are you using too much water do they need aerators and um things like that how can we um conserve not only energy but also the other resources that go into a home so that's our weatherization program then we have the heat program that goes in and will help do utility assistance for heat water um and even now they used to start doing they started doing air conditioning during the summer because it used to just be a winter program but now they're doing it during the summer months to help uh, people with electric bills so that they can um, keep cool in the summer. And so we have that program. We have the TANF rapid rehousing, um, where if you're a family and and you're needing assistance, either getting into a home or staying in a home and you're a renter, you can come get financial assistance and we'll help with your rent for a couple months just to help you. And we'll do um, case, uh, what am I trying to think of? Like casework with you and kind of, help you get back on your feet and help you find the resources that you need to, to reach economic stability. Again, going back to that development and just making people, we just want to help people develop into being economically stable, whether that's economic development or you and your personal life. Um, we have the circles program, which is all about that setting goals, helping people reach 200% of the poverty, federal poverty income levels. Um, and then we run the BTAC. We have the, um, community development block grant program that we run with housing um, homeless yeah we have homelessness prevention um, so if someone is without a home they can come in we can we have those relationships with our local housing authorities and housing providers that we can help you get into a home um, we can help you with assistance just to be in a in a motel or a hotel just until we can find you a home um, and so those are some of the we do we do Aging. a lot Aging. we do a lot uh, we have a different a lot of different touch points oh Tamron just remind me we we also run all the senior centers in Emory County um, we used to run the one in Carbon County it was a shared position between um, an employee here who 50% of his time was running the Carbon County Senior Center and 50% of his time was running the five senior centers at Emory County um, that just ended in Carbon County decided to hire their own uh, director. Um, and so, but we run a lot of aging programs for veterans or low income or people with disabilities that, that just need assistance or maybe their caregiver needs assistance. Um, we just have all types of different um, programs to help when people are homebound or they need special treatment or whatever it may be. And that's all in our aging office. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. There's, there's so much. Uh, that's it really is. We manage about, um, I think the last number I heard was about 120 state, federal, and private grants annually. So we're constantly applying for grants, constantly finding the funding, implementing it, and then hopefully doing a good enough job that the next year those funders want to fund us again. Yeah. There's so many things I want to ask you about. It sounds, though, like just such a an interesting and exciting line of work that you both are in and I imagine it must be 
very gratifying and fulfilling to have such an impact on so many people's lives, but also on these communities and towns and cities more broadly. It's such a complex um, picture that that you're you're painting for all that you do, um, and I imagine it must be that there are a lot of unique challenges to working in a rural area like like you are for Southeast Utah. So this is the the center that is administering all of those programs for all all four of the counties. Uh, it's Carbon, San Juan, Emory, and Grand. Mm -hmm. Wow. So. <clears throat> what we have um, employees in all those counties too. okay so there are there are like smaller offices mm -hmm. in each county okay makes sense but um i i was talking to I, some of the guys who work for the maybe the the weatherization program and you've got some employees that do actual insulating work and mm -hmm. such uh, they were telling me that they drive all the way out to um you know the the corner of Southeast Utah and go as, as far as that to do some of their work. So I guess some of those programs or, or personnel and resources are still coming from here and going, going as far out as that. Yeah, they do. That's weatherization. Um, we used to have employees down in Mexican Hat, down really close to Navajo Nation. Um, unfortunately, through COVID, we kind of lost the employees and we haven't been able to hire down there. So they, I take my hat like... They're a great crew. They they dedicate one week a month where they just go live in San Juan County. They they found a condo that they rent and they all stay together and, and that's all they do for a whole week is just bust out houses down there. And like you said, they're they're down to what you would think is the ends of the earth, just trying to find those homes on Navajo Nation. You know, they are given a coordinate and they have to trust their GPS that it's taking them there. And they're I mean, I've gotten phone calls of we're stuck in a wash. What do we do? And I'm like, find someone because like I'm four hours away. If it's away. raining, get the higher ground. <laughs> so I mean, but they're they're dedicated to it. So they're and 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 I and I say that about all of our employees here that they're dedicated to all their programs that they run. They just want to help people. Yeah. Wow. There's so many things that I want to ask you about. I feel like we we could easily talk for three hours, uh, but I'll, we'll try to. For now, we could have another conversation in the future. I'd love to come back in a year and you know talk more, but we'll just try to keep it at a, a higher level for this this conversation. Um, this might be kind of a basic question, and Jade spoke to it a little bit, but Tamara, I'm wondering if you could just kind of define for us what what does development mean. It might seem obvious to some people, um, but in in uh, if you would simplify that in a few words, like what is community development? There's really, um, there's probably several answers and Jade did touch on those. And one um, with our BTAC, our Business Technical Assistance Center, that's what the old building we were in. We actually have folks that um, are starting their upstart businesses. They rent at a, at a lower rent and the, the whole, um, the idea is to get them out of there in a couple of years and getting them into a brick and mortar downtown. So we're developing our downtown at the same time. We start them there, make it affordable. Many times they've, they've got the funding from the revolving loan fund from us and we kind of move them through, mentor them, you know, help them work on business plans with them and then, then move them on through. And again, Jade said it perfectly, the development of a human being is something that I think that we really do here. Mm -hmm. I think we, we look at them, um, without judgment, 
Um, they are, some of them are in really dire circumstances. And so we have to understand that they're coming from a very different place than we're sitting from. And so my ideas may not work for them. And so we're this listening and developing that person um, or family or couple um, is, I think is pivotal to what everybody does in here, um, is making sure that we take them from one, one point to the next, work with other agencies collaboratively to make sure they have entire wraparound services because housing is one piece of what they may need. And if somebody's homeless, they need to get off the street. We're going to put them in a hotel so it's when it's, you know, 12 degrees at night. But then we're going to move them through that process and make sure that they have the help all the way through until they're they're stable. So. Wow. Yeah, so it's what I'm hearing is, you know, economic development, community development, development in general is really about increasing economic growth and productivity, alleviating poverty, um, making, improving the quality of life for individuals and making their, their communities more uh, places that are, that are just nice to live, saving historic buildings, um, adding to like, public beautification projects. It's kind of all of that. And so you're, you just, you, and I, I know you have uh, a kind of a comprehensive development plan document on on the website. I haven't read through that in its entirety. Is that something that is uh, created or updated every year or several years? Yeah. So we actually just got it just got approved yesterday oh by my the gosh. Economic Development Yay. Administration. <laughs> we turned it in in September, and they finally just gave us a thumbs up and said, "Good job. You did. You satisfied what you need to do, and and publish it basically." So. Yeah, what you're referring to is called the Comprehensive Economic Development Strategy. We call it the SEDS because we're government and we just love acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> and so the SEDS is wrote every five years and it's updated annually. Um, so the SEDS is basically a high-level kind of economic development strategy we set. There's seven goals in there. Um, we set the goals. And how do I want to say this? We, we kind of set them... Um, loosely because it is a five-year document so we don't know what in five years it's going to look like however anytime any community applies for economic development administration funds so funds from the eda they have to align with the set so we so the goals are there because they're like economic diversification and and things that we want to achieve um, but we kind of leave it up to the communities to then define what those goals mean if that makes sense mm -hmm. and so um yeah, and that, that's kind of what we, we try to do. And, and our most recent project that we did was with Carbon County. They received an EDA grant of uh, one point, was about $1.4 million. Um, USU Eastern was actually the match for it. They put in $500,000 cash, um, and we're going to construct a new hangar at the Carbon County Airport for the aviation mechanics program. And so um usu logan is at capacity they're kind of tapped at where they're at with the aviation mechanics program and so they're like why don't we look at our other satellite offices in southeastern utah carbon county has a great airport they brought down the pilot program they brought down the pilot program probably two three years ago and they're just seeing loads of success just because it's not a busy airport like the logan airport is and and air traffic isn't a concern and so they just said, why don't we bring down the aviation mechanics program? The issue was Carbon County did not have the space to do that. 
And so we went after a grant through the EDA and, and we secured the funding and they should be breaking ground on a new hangar um, the first part of 2024 and it should be completed by the, by the first part of 2025. And students, I think they're thinking about the first part of 2026 by the time they get the FAA sign off on everything. Wow, that's exciting. Oh, okay, I want to ask more about that uh, comprehensive economic development plan strategy set CEDS uh, and 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 in your own words what you think you know your vision for the the future is for the next five years what you're hoping to accomplish but first I wanted to uh, just ask about everything we we're just talking about with all these programs and resources so I'd like to help people figure out if this these are things that they themselves should access or if they qualify for so I'm wondering how do people know if if they qualify for these programs and if they should should reach out and get in contact with you all because you know I, I've noticed that I, there's some people I think are, are really hesitant to ask for that kind of assistance they there's a stigma around it or I think sometimes there's a misconception that certain programs and resources are, are very limited and so they feel like, well, if I'm not in desperate need of assistance, then I, I shouldn't access that and leave it for someone who really needs it. But uh, I'm wondering if you can speak to that. First of all, like, are, are the resources limited? And I guess you were talking about, uh, you know, some of these home repair programs, the, the grant funding for those is limited and, and so you're having to prioritize, I guess, and make decisions based on people's applications, but other things like the, the weatherization programs, the assistance with utility bills, the food bank, um, are, are those resources also limited as well or is it more that you're able to really um, provide assistance to as many people as as apply or the programs can scale to meet demand and the 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 data you collect about how many people are being served does that uh, increase the amount of grant funding that you're eligible for the next year can you explain how that works yeah that's kind of a loaded question so let me see how I can answer it um, not in a bad way so you are right yes we are limited like we apply for grants and then we receive X amount of dollars for the next year and that's all we have um, now every once in a while the state may come back and say hey we received an extra whatever we want to give you an extra because you're you you have a need for it so we're going to give you an extra little bit of money and they'll do a contract amendment things like that but typically yes we are limited but what i will say um and again this points back to our staff is our staff is dedicated to help whoever comes through our doors and so whether that's it it it, it may seem rough that we have to put you on a wait list or we may reach out to another resource in the community that we know that might be able to you know hold help you for the time being and then we can you know bring it back once we get our next tranche of funding um or like you were mentioning if people feel like they're not really in need but they they still want to come in and do assess do um apply i would encourage anyone to do that because we do most of our programs do have some type of assistance or sorry our programs have some type of assessment to where those with the greatest needs will get the assistance, but then it'll just kind of trickle down the list from there. So like there's, I, I feel like 
there's a benefit of at least just coming in and seeing where you are on the list um, because we, we want to help whoever we can help. And so I wish we could help everyone that comes through, but unfortunately there's sometimes we can't. But like Tamara was mentioning, like the housing programs, she may put someone on a list, but I mean, those people, they need it. So we're going to try our best. And so we're finding other funding like the HAP funding, or we may reach out to USDA and say, hey, we know you have this emergency grant or this emergency loan. Could we talk more about this? Maybe see if we can make it work for this client. Or we've had clients that we've been working with two years or more um, where we might be able to do a little bit. And then like the next year, we might be able to do a little bit more and then a little bit more. And then we finally get them done. Or we just have to work with them and get them maybe through the weatherization program and then get them through the heat program. And then we can do their housing program and then that's how we kind of piece and leverage all our programs together so I I don't want to I want to encourage all to come and and we'll help you the best that we can and yeah there's sometimes that we're not going to be able to help but maybe it's not immediate but we we will always find a way to help okay good thank you for offering that encouragement because I think Sometimes people just need to be invited, um, and you know, uh, understandably, a lot of folks. I mean, myself included. I like uh, you. T- you take pride in your ability to make a living for yourself and take care of yourself, and it's it's hard to ask for help. But that is what you guys are are here to do, and uh, you know, everybody needs help at some point in their lives. Even if you're you're a capable, able-bodied young person now, at some point you may be living with disabilities or have lost your job. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm glad to hear that. I wanted to ask. This is a a really niche question, but it's just such a hot topic, both you know in the state of Utah, more so in like Salt Lake area, but nationally. Uh, regarding homelessness and housing, um, you know, I, I've heard some people, so I lived in San Francisco and Portland, Oregon, and spent time in Los Angeles, and so I've kind of seen the whole the whole spectrum of homelessness, and uh, actually a lot of my time spent in architecture school and uh, starting a grad program for, for city planning. That was kind of my main interest. It just seems like such a massive problem and that's so difficult to address and there are a lot of uh you know a lot of opinions and attitudes and about this and i've looked at just some of the discussion around salt lake's homelessness problem and some people you know have this attitude that well these people should just you know we we shouldn't allow them to to exist here or sleep here they they need to move on to somewhere else make but I just feel like it's making it another town or community's problem. Um, you know, it's it's. Some people feel that we need to take a hard stance on this. You can't you can't allow people to to camp out on on sidewalks and be using drugs. And then other people are have a very compassionate stance. It's like, well, they just recognize that there's nowhere to go. And you know, people in this position, there's there's really no. They, some a lot of people just are not able to help themselves um, due to say mental illness or substance use disorder that has gotten out of control. So uh, my question is just I'm curious if because you you have obviously worked on this issue and and are so involved with housing, 
I'm wondering if you have like broader ideas or theories about how how do we address uh, the housing shortage, housing affordability, and homelessness in general? Like, what, in your opinion, this could be related to maybe the the five year um, strategy that I want to ask you about next. But where where do we go from here? At you know, and is, are the are the solutions and theories uh, for how we address this in small towns and rural areas very different from how they're going to deal with it in Salt Lake, or is it all kind of the the same problem? Are you, you okay if I take it first? I know that this is um, pretty near and dear to Tamara's heart, being that this is what she did in a, in a previous profession back in uh, California. So I don't want to take too much time from her. So. But I just want to, from an agency standpoint, um, I would say we lean more on the compassionate side of things where, like what you just mentioned, like we want to give people opportunities. We want them to be successful. Um, however, some of the challenges that we're up against are, like you said, just educating our public, educating um some of our elected officials, I'm saying some because not all of them think like like that we shouldn't give them a chance or that um, they're doing it to themselves or whatever it may be because we have a lot of good politicians. Um, for instance, Mayor Mike, like we've had people where he's opened up bathrooms Recently. at the park because they're heated so that people can sleep in there until they can come see us the next day or... Wow. We've had, um, we've let people, you know, set up their tent on our lawn at our old building um, just because they needed a safe place to go and we had the police patrol them just so that no one was messing with them or so that people would know because there is that stigma to it. And so I, I hope what I'm, I hope what you're hearing, what I'm trying to say is that we're actively looking for solutions for people that are unhoused. Um, in fact, it's like our ultimate goal is to, um, we would love to build some tort, some type of transitional housing to where if people that need a home, they can come, we can put them up for, you know, however long it may, may need um, until we can help get them into maybe like Tamara's housing rehab um, program or Vicki Ori's mutual self-help housing, which is that housing program, or even just get into housing at like the Carbon County Housing Authority, whatever it may be. However, we do recognize um, that we're not set up for that in the sense of in the sense of that when people come in that situation they're experiencing that crisis we want to be positioned well enough to have all the resources like social workers or maybe some type of um, medical staff or something that can help us monitor because like you said sometimes when people are unhoused they come with they, they have other challenges um, such as mental illness or substance abuse disorder or something like that. So we just want to be well positioned. Now, we're currently trying to do that. Like we have our housing program. And so part of their casework is um, working with Four Corners Behavioral Health or the health department on some things. Um, but anyway, what I'm trying to say is we're, we're, we're trying to tackle that because because we want to see people be successful. Mm. Tamara, could you speak to this issue based on, I guess this is something that you worked on when you lived in California as well, yes. and you have more of a, a background with I do. This? I have. I don't deal with homeless in my current position, but in, in California I did, and I ran two family shelters. And so 
and had the permanent supportive housing and had transitional housing and all that is really important. And I lived in a very rural, not rural like here, but it, it had less than 50,000 people um, in the entire county. And the county was huge because it went clear into Yosemite and, and uh, it, this Sonora was kind of the center of everything. So again, I think what I've said before and Jade just said before, just reaching out in those collaborations, it, exhaust every resource in house that's that's our first thing when we're dealing with somebody now homelessness you're you may not be dealing with a, a heating bill because they don't have a place to live um but just taking that person from that beginning if what we can't do the mayor's stepped in active re-entry if they have some kind of disability we really work collaboratively with everybody the health department four corners all of those different kind of places because you are dealing with a some first of all that's the one person that walks in here is the most in crisis they are in crisis you watch a woman walk in here with a baby and she's in tears because her abusive boyfriend just kicked her on the street and she has no place to go that night so everybody i've seen everybody get take her to the motel move her here get her food open the food bank i mean it's just it's like all hands on deck it just happens immediately and then take that person and try to get her her or him or family whatever it may be through all the programs and all the resources that are here in the county rural gets shut out a lot we need um low-income multi-family housing it's very difficult for us to uh, we, we'll apply but it it never trickles down this far. It's rural it gets boxed out of a lot of funding because we don't, the numbers aren't there, but the need is. <laughs> so this, and I think it's a national thing, um, but we do something called the point in time count. Have you ever heard the point in time count? Mm -hmm. So the point in time count, for whatever reason, they do it in January. They don't want to know the real numbers. Um, and so basically what it is, is it, it's, like it says, like point in time. So they pick a time, a date, and you go out and you count all the homeless or the unhoused in your area. Mm -hmm. And you only do it for those like two or three days. Mm -hmm. And then that's your count for like the year. That's what they base funding off of. What's hard is like like what Tamara was just mentioning, what, what we've been seeing in the past is we'll go do the point in time count, but we may find one, two, maybe three, because it's in the middle of January. Mm -hmm. They do it at like five o'clock in the morning. And th these are not our rules. We have to adhere to what the state or the federal government's telling us what time to do it and, and the date to do it. And so um, it's really hard when, you know, we come back and we say we only have three homeless mm -hmm. in our area, but we need funding. However, our funding throughout the year, we're ser serving, you know, maybe 60 to 100 people in an, in an, a in an annual, like in a, in a fiscal year. And so it's really hard because they, they take that point in time count so serious, which it should be, but it's not truly reflective of the need in our area, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And so that, that becomes a really big challenge for us hmm. and, and why I think you're not seeing so much um, in, in that realm of things mm -hmm. happening here in Carbon and Emory counties, really in southeastern Utah, is just because the way that they capture the data doesn't really reflect the true need of what we need, of what we have in, in the area. I'll add something real quick on that, just to give you a, a, a glaring example. I worked with the, the County Board of Supervisors, that's what they were called in, in um, Sonora, 
and we decided collectively that we were going to do an unofficial point in time count in the summer. And so our numbers would hover around 100, anywhere from like 85 to 110. All point in time counts in January were always like that. We did one on our own, strictly got the police involved, got churches involved, went out in the mountains, went out and found the camps. We had 775 people in the summer compared to this hundred hmm. and that and but when we, you put in that point of time count on an application they see a hundred people they just go yeah yeah we need to go to sacramento san francisco you've yeah. seen them you've seen where the big homeless camps are in california yeah so that was really it, it shocked it was it, it shocked people so we used that in all our grant after that it was unofficial but we used it every every time every time and we started to get a little bit more funding just based on that um I'm not so sure that count, they really want to know the true count doing it in January when so much of the country is in a deep freeze. Yeah. People can't, can't live outside. I'm, <laughs> I'm sure they have their purpose for doing it. Yeah. It just seems a little, Yeah. It, it just becomes challenging for us. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, it's just obviously so hard to measure and observe in a vast rural area as opposed to the, the downtown core of an urban area where well there's there's nowhere to go so it's highly visible they, exactly. they can only exist and sleep on the sidewalks it's very easy to see so people are very much a lot more aware of it but you know the the issue really just being um you know poverty in general in a rural area it's it's so people i think can be be more more invisibly slipping into poverty and homelessness and, you know, living in, in camping trailers and vehicles um, or, you know, having too many people crowded on a single property and, you know, they, they're maybe just in essentially the same position that someone uh, experiencing homelessness in an urban area is, but you wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily recognize it. So it makes sense. There's another thing I'd love to spend a whole couple of hours talking about because it really interests me and honestly that's one of the things that if I can ever finish renovating my building, the, the thing that I would most love to be involved with and working on here locally because just my background being in, in architecture and um, urban design, the, the reason I, I studied that was because I was fascinated by just the condition of, of you know, people experiencing homelessness in in the city and wondering is like what is there another um, kind of intermediary step between you know unlawful camping on the street and that first transitional housing like uh, I've heard it referred to as tent city urbanism mm -hmm. or basically you know sanctioned camps where there are services provided and they're trying to just centralize everything um so anyway yeah i'd love to i just listened to a podcast about that i think it was in olympia um it was really interesting yeah yeah a number of cities i think are experimenting with that and it seems like it's working well enough to to for them to continue it's i mean it seems to me like a far better option than just having having it completely unregulated i mean that's why you know, San Francisco, people perceive San Francisco as just completely falling apart. I mean, in reality, like living there, like, yeah, it looks pretty bad on that street level just in certain parts of the city. But I mean, overall, San Francisco is still like 
a beautiful place. It's it's like there are tons of people living there. It's got a lot going on, but all that anybody else sees is just how out of control the, the homelessness is. But uh, anyway, uh, so I want to just get to a few of my last questions before we run out of time. So wondering if you can, it's 11 o'clock, um, and we can wrap this up at any point that you need to go. But wanted to know what is the, in general, the the five-year plan looking like? And in your answer, could you mention what you see as being both uh in general, you know, Southeast Utah, it's, it's hard to, I'm sure, just, you know, break down or, or simplify, but in general, are there uh, overarching challenges that that a lot of uh, communities are facing in, in the area that you, you oversee? And um, on the other hand, what do you see as being the main opportunities? So what, what, is, what do you think economic growth should look like for us here? Um, and, and what do you, where do you hope to be or have achieved in another five or ten years? No, I think, and I'll let Jade speak to this because he's very, very involved in it. I think our one of our biggest challenges um, are, are two power plants. And if they shut down and there's no alternatives in there, well, we're going to be ghost towns, literally. And, and Jade has a lot of involvement, so I'll pass it on to him. Yeah, Tamara basically just said it very frank like that's, that's I did. Kind I of our future if we don't do anything so I, I would say our biggest thing um, our our biggest goal that I think we should be looking and working towards in the next five to ten years is just diversification so for many many years I mean hundreds of years this area has not hundreds but a hundred years this area has been so reliant upon you know one industry and that's been extraction. And so, uh, uh, particularly the coal mining industry. So, and then from there, the extraction to then the coal burning power plants that were constructed back in the 70s, um, 70s, 80s, right in there that, you know, they're coming up on their on their useful life. And, and when those power plants are decommissioned, so does a lot of our workforce, but also so does a large portion of our tax base. Um, you know, one of the, the case studies that I like to kind of address and, and talk about is Carbon County. So Carbon County, you know, they've, they're literally named after the resource that, that they mined, coal, and um, they don't have an active coal mine. In over 100 years, this is the first time that they do not have an active coal mine in operation here in Carbon County. And it's hurt them tremendously. You know, you've, you probably have read in the newspaper or, or seen stories about, you know, 700% tax increase and, and property taxes going up tremendously. And, and that all came from because the carbon power plant shut down. Now, should the, um, should have we been doing better planning and proactive planning for when that power plant shut down? It wasn't such a burden on the community. I also think that we, we should have done that too. But also, you know, with the clo closure of that plant in 2015 came, um, you know, the displacement of over 200 jobs. Luckily, some of those jobs were either paid out and retired um, and, and put people into retirement, or two, some of those jobs were relocated to the two power plants in Carbon and Emory Counties. Um, or, sorry, in Emory County, the, the Hunter and Huntington power plants. I was thinking of them, I just said the wrong thing. And so... <clears throat> We were fortunate that it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Now to 
paint some perspective, those two power plants in Emory County, Hunter and Huntington, they they provide about 60 to 70 percent of Emory County's total budget of their county revenues and for the school district. So when those two power plants are decommissioned, that 60, 70 percent tax burden that they were that they were contributing to is going to be shifted back to the citizens, which is what we're seeing in Carbon County. And so that's why I'm saying diversification, I think, is going to be our biggest thing is we need, we need other industry to come in, but also, you know, one of the pluses of having the coal burning power plants in the area is now we have, one, a skilled workforce, two, we have the infrastructure, whether it be the highways and, trans- and uh, interstate, but also the um, transmission lines that run right through our counties and the generation stations and the, the power stations, substations, you know, those are big assets that we have to where we can still be an energy producer of the Intermountain West. We just need to find out what that is. Now, they, they're researching, you know, advanced nuclear reactors and thorium reactors, and maybe that can be what supplements has the coal burning power plants as they're decommissioned. These nuclear reactors can come online and, and utilize the infrastructure that's already in place, the workforce that we already have in place to still be these energy producers, which I think would be good. However, we still need to diversify because what happens if that doesn't, one, if that doesn't come to fruition, or two, now we're putting all our eggs in that basket. So what's gonna happen in, you know, the next hundred years? And so, um, you know, that, that that's kind of my thoughts on it is just, we need to attract other things. And, and, and that's, you know, that's the case for carbon in Emory counties. Now, if you look at Grand and San Juan, you know, they're still heavily, like Moab was a big uranium town, um, mined a bunch of uranium, but now they've transitioned to be very tourism dominated. And then when COVID came and the parks were shut down and tourism was shut down, that Grand County in Moab City, they took a big hit of losing out on those TRT dollars. And so even they're looking at diversification of, of we need other, we need another tax base to help support us here other than just tourism. Same thing with San Juan County. Um, now I wish I knew specifics, but those are all the conversations that we're having of like, we need to do something now and we're generating plans and strategies. Um, like I mentioned, Carbon and Emory County are heavily looking at, um, you know, anything from battery, ma- battery manufacturing to biofuel manufacturing to these advanced nuclear reactors. And so um, they're, trying anything and everything that they can um, to attract other industry here. Hmm. What does uh, attracting industry or businesses look like? Is it mostly about offering like uh, some kind of t- tax break incentive or um, you know what can what what are the local governments doing to try to attract industry or, or what could they be doing to improve our, our chances of because I guess it's a lot of this depends on just private energy corporations deciding to set up shop here and develop here as opposed to elsewhere. Yeah, and, and I and I I feel like um, I feel like Utah, and not just Utah, but Carbon and Emory County are positioned well because we don't have as much regulation on on those types of industries as like um, other states, other counties do, and so when when we're attracting businesses or attracting industry, that's something that we have in our favor. Um, but also, you know, 
with some of the solar farm development with um, another large employer here um, in Carver County um, that are hiring hundreds of people um, here in Price. You know, they were the reason why they were able to do their expansions and and um, and do their big developments is because of, like you mentioned, tax breaks. We call it tax incremental financing. Um, so doing community reinvestment areas where they put in so much money and they better the, the um, property than through um, tax incremental financing, the, the county can then negotiate a portion of their property tax paid back to that business if they do A, B, and C. And so they can put in those those um, conditions. But I think the biggest thing that, that our elected officials and our economic development departments are doing right now is um, to, to position themselves to be attractive is getting all of our infrastructure in place. And so, um, like that, that speaks volumes when a business can come in and, and all their needs are met. Currently, that's not the case in Carbon County. For instance, they have two businesses looking at them. Um, they're in the Ridge Road complex, and if one business comes in, it's gonna it's gonna eat up all their um, electrical capacity that they have on Ridge Road to where then that other business won't be able to come in. And so they're looking at, um, what do we do? Like, we need more capacity there. If we're going to be attractive to businesses, we need to make sure that all their needs are met. And so they're looking at, you know, large DOE grants, talking to um, service providers, you know, trying, <coughs> trying to figure out how do we get more capacity? How do we build out this needed infrastructure in these areas so that if a business does come or when a business is attracted to the area, we don't have to say, oh, sorry, we can't meet all your needs, and this was just a big waste of time. Now, they've already had some wins, like through um, some earmarks that they submitted through um, Congressman Curtis's office. They were able to receive um, some federal funding to help acquire water rights and land out there on Ridge Road to help these businesses come in to where they wouldn't have any restricted restrictions on property owners or needing to find water. The county would just have it. And so that's been a huge win probably in the last year of like going to that how do how do we attract these businesses is just having the available resources ready at hand to say here you go like you're ready to open up business we're ready for you okay it's 11 13 do you have time for two more questions one or two sure okay um so maybe the yeah, so first, Tamara, I'm wondering if just in your work, I want to, I'm curious about your interfacing with the, the Navajo Nation. Is there any other Native American reservations that are within your service, service area? Um, if not, what, uh, what, what is unique about the, the reservations and, and how you work with them? Um, is it very different? Do they have, I mean, I would imagine they have unique challenges. Um, could you just I just would love to hear you speak to that for a minute I'm not even sure what to ask just I've never sure. I've never been there I'm, so it's a uh, I'd love I'd love to learn more about it in the programs that I represent we cannot help the Navajo Nation because the Navajo Nation gets separate funding um, from like the community development block grant money that I get they get as a separate pot of money and so that restricts me that would be calling what they government calls double dipping 
I can't service a project and then service a project with the same grant money. It's a big pot of money. They get some, we get some, or the, the AOGs and the counties get some. So, and Community Impact Board is the same, same thing. We can't go onto the Navajo Nation because of that restriction. Um, I don't know if the Community Impact Board has separate funding or they do have separate funding as well. They call it the Navajo Revitalization Fund. Thank you. So there, there is separate pots of money for them. Um, I, I won't speak completely for this. Weatherization is an exception within the AOG that and they can go on to the Navajo Nation and mm -hmm. help them with the weatherization process. And the heat program. Mm -hmm. So on those two programs, we have agreements in place that we can go in and provide those services. If, and, it, and it's through, uh, I believe it's um, self, um, it's a declaration, like they have to declare themselves that, that they haven't received the heat benefit or the weatherization benefit from the Navajo um, sovereign government. And so then once we get that, that um, declaration, then we can go in and help. And so that, it's really, you know, that's something Though we cover San Juan County and we cover all of San Juan County, we ha we try to help as much as we can on Navajo Nation, but it really is a, um, an interesting partnership that we have with them um, because they are their own sovereign nation. And so oftentimes Navajo Nation wants to talk government to government, meaning like either right. their government to the state of Utah government or even to like the federal level and not really us, um, which is fine because they are a sovereign nation. Um, I just wish we could help more than what we can yeah. down there. I agree. Um, because there are some needs, and, and we do help um, some whenever we can, whenever we have like um, some discretionary money that, we, that we, can, we can do some stuff with, but that doesn't come very often, and I wish we could help more. Me too. Yeah. I'd love to do another episode just, just on that. I, I'm going to reach out to Davina Smith. She's running for the state house, and I, I believe she lives on the reservation down there, or at least is in that county. Um, okay, so last question, because we're uh, running out of time. I just want to know what opportunities are there for people to volunteer or get involved, uh, people who have the, the time, the resources, and um, are looking for some way to give back to their community and, and get involved? Um, are there, with the, the self-help housing program that uses volunteers to, to do construction or the food bank, are there, what are the best ways for people to volunteer and, and how should they get started with that process? Is, is it a, some, somewhere they apply online or should they contact someone directly? So yeah, the mutual self-help, if they contacted Vicki Ori and they, they could look at that, they could become a volunteer. There's a, there's a minimal amount of paperwork that they fill out and then they could help on that project. And we've had um, realtors do it. There, there's, there's been a lot of people that are offered the time. Mayors, city mayors um, have offered to help. So it's, it's been really a, volunteers from places that you may not expect, just the average person. Then Jade can speak to the other programs because there's yeah, so like you mentioned, the food bank, you, we always need volunteers in the food bank. Um, we didn't really touch about on this, but our old food bank was just a warehouse. It was just, I don't know how else to describe it. It was just a like a 2,000 square foot warehouse where we had shelves of food and literally people would come into the front office, fill out their paperwork, go to the back door and literally receive a shopping cart just pushed out the door saying, here you go. 
And so um, when we built this new building, we decided to move towards um, what's called a choice pantry food bank. And so it's actually set up like a grocery store now. And so um, people that are utilizing the food bank, they can come in and rather than just kind of having that um, dehumanizing situation of here's a box of food, they can actually go in and shop for what their family wants and what their family needs. Um, so we're we're real excited about that. But with that comes now more staffing. We got to make sure the shelves are stocked. We have a bigger area to clean now. Um, we're always looking for donations because now um, instead of a small warehouse, now we have about two three thousand square feet of um, warehouse, actual warehouse, and then another about thousand to two thousand square feet of actually grocery store. And so. Um, always needing help there, sorting food, getting food, picking up food. We go do grocery, we call it grocery rescue every morning to all the different grocery stores here in Carbon County. Um, and this is in Carbon, Emory, Grand, and San Juan. This is all the same issue. So always looking for volunteers there. Um, I think one of the other programs that, that's fairly new, um, and, and it, it's, it's a really cool program, it's called the Circles Initiative. And so what the Circles Initiative is, is it's basically um, having people that are um, not in crisis, but kind of right on that cusp of either economic insecurity, but also like they're just right there, like they just need just a little bit, we don't like to call them handouts, but like just a hand up, just they just need that little extra push to get over the poverty guidelines and, and, and reach economic stability. And so that program, they hold it every Wednesday night here here at our offices. In fact, that's what our building, you kind of mentioned how we kind of architecturally set it up to where we have departments, that main conference room that's right in the middle. If you notice, it can be split up into four classrooms and, and it's for that reason that we have four different classes that we teach in that circles program where they come, families come, um, they meet together, they have a meal together, we talk and then they split up and it's all based on kind of age groups we have the adults and the parents meet in one classroom, then we have the teenagers, then kind of the more younger kids, and then the infants, and they all learn the same lesson, just kind of geared towards the appropriate age group. And so, but with that program, there there's a component called um, allies, which is basically someone that is economically stable. Um, they're paired up with someone that, that's needing assistance, and um you're just there we call it an intentional friendship you're just there to be a friend to them hmm. so that as they are you know reaching these hard decisions in life of i got a new job but it doesn't pay as much as my current job but it has insurance or like what do i do they have a friend that can kind of walk them through like how to make not not what decision to make but just have someone that can bounce those ideas off of someone to set smart goals with and, and someone to hold them accountable. And, and it's not just the ally holding the participant or the, we, we call them, um, what am I blanking? I don't know. I don't know what they're called. They are called, you're going to have to cut this out because this is embarrassing that I don't <laughs> even know. Yeah, the, 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 the members they're, of the circle. Members, circles. Because we try to use a word. Consumers? No, because we try to use a word that like empowers them. Yeah. Um, leader. Circles leader. Hmm. So 
it's not just so that the the circle's participants also known as the circle leader and the circle leader is teamed up with this ally and this ally is this intentional friendship to help them you know set goals help them to do things um but the cool thing is is not only is it the ally holding the circle leader accountable but also the ally setting those same goals and the leader needs to help hold the ally accountable and so you're kind of really kind of building this community um together and so that's probably one that we we really need volunteers in is just help come be a friend help come have dinner with with um these circle leaders once a week um you know and then throughout that throughout the week it's just quick texts or phone call or hey how are you doing i mean we've we've even gone as far as you know we had one circle leader and one circle ally who became really good friends that they didn't even know that their kids played on the same baseball team next thing you know they were sitting by each other at baseball games you know going to community events together and and you know that that's the whole purpose of that program is not everyone thinks and this is a whole other probably conversation is called it's called bridges out of poverty and how you know people in low class people in middle class and people in upper class um they all have like these different social we call them hidden rules um and so like people that are experiencing poverty like they're way more focused on relationships and friendships and you know if you help me do this i'll help you do that because that's how we survive where people in middle class they're more on you go to college you get a degree that's how you're going to help yourself you know they're they're very focused on achievements and you do a b and c and then you get a reward and then upper class is more again on like it's more based upon um which is really funny they're based on friendships and relationships just like the lower classes but there are more like oh i went to dinner with the kennedys last yeah. night or whatever it may be you know um social but but those social things are so weird but but the thing that i don't think a lot of people realize is our our communities and, and our our social structure is based upon so much of the middle class where it's just like like going back to our talk about unhoused people well they're unhoused because they didn't go to school or they're unhoused they wouldn't be unhoused if they just went and got a job or they're not un, they wouldn't be unhoused if they would go back to school and so that's our community and our society is so set on middle class rules that we need to help um teach the circle leaders and our allies on how do we bring the two kind of worlds together and how do we thrive thrive with the two hidden rules does that make sense mm -hmm. and so that that's kind of what the whole circles program's about and so it's a really cool program that's probably a whole nother podcast that you could do just on that um but that's a place where we need and there's so many more layers to it of different types of volunteers there's you know community leaders where we need volunteers the big view which is like if there's an issue we can call that person that's volunteer and they can help work on big overall issues like policy issues in the community it's all over the place but but the allies is really what we're what we're gearing up for we're going to start our next cohort here at the first part of january mm, that's great okay so if people want to volunteer in any capacity is it all right if they contact either of you directly and you can could you refer them to whoever they need to talk to yeah or um you're all anyone's always welcome to come out to our new building see our facilities um or you can call 435-637-5444 
Again, that's 435-637-5444. And the address of the building is? And our address is 252 South Fairgrounds Road. So just right by kind of the senior center, event center here in Carbon County. Awesome. All right. Thank you both so much for talking. This is a, I learned a lot. This is a really fascinating conversation and I'm, I'm glad to be connected to you both and hope to, to talk more in the future. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for the opportunity to share more. Yeah. Bye, everybody.